Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and again, we're going to talk about the Kingdom of God. And what we're going to talk about a little bit is the Bible itself. Now, it's written that God wants to write His laws upon your heart and upon your mind, yet the apostles and Moses and other people thought to write down what became known as the Holy Scriptures. And they are supposedly inspired by God. Well, who was inspired? The authors were inspired by God. Now, who is, is the reader inspired by God? Well, if the all readers were inspired by God, there would not be 40,000 different denominations. There would not be Jews and Christians and what have you interpreting Old and New Testament and coming up with so many different ideas. So how do you know what is true by reading the Bible? Are you, it's not given to private interpretation, so why do you know what it says? Do you believe in scholars? Well, scholars don't agree. Do you believe in uh, seminary professors? Oh, they don't all agree. So how do you know what's in the Bible is true or not true? And when you know that truth, do you really know it because you read it in the Bible? Or because it's written in your heart and your mind by the Holy Spirit. Well, truthfully, the only way to know is by knowing what God is putting in your heart and putting in your mind through divine revelation. You have to have revelation to understand the Bible. It's not a matter of eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's not a matter of just studying the Bible and knowing what is true. You have, because all kinds of people do that and they come up with different answers. It's not just logic, although everything that is true is logical. You can't arrive at the truth through logic. You can only arrive at the truth through revelation. Now, what is revelation? People talk about intuiting something. They just know. Then then you say, how do you know? And then they start making up logical or rational excuses why you know this to be true. And if other people can come along and say, well, yeah, you reason this, but this is actually true over here, and that doesn't fit with what you think. So then you work this out with fear and trembling, hopefully, because it is humility that allows for revelation. If you know it already, how can God tell you anything? You have to be willing to say, I'm a sinner, I don't know, I need something greater than me to help. This is true across the board, whether you're going to AA meetings or trying to accomplish anything. You have to believe that there is a higher truth beyond yourself. Otherwise, you become angry, resentful. We see a lot of that going on in the news today, where people are just angry and belligerent and abusive of everybody else because they don't believe that there's something higher than themselves. (laughs) They're it. And so anyway, that's what we're going to be exploring. We're having a little sound difficulty. We'll see how this all works out anyway. So that we'll see, see where, what we can discover together. Things like, you know, the Bible, religion, you know, relationships of people, 
and they have this idea that uh, their understanding of these texts, uh, the words that are in these texts, and they're applying modern definitions to ancient texts. And they they really haven't got a clue what they're talking about, some of them. I mean, some people will come to the understanding of the Bible and what it's all about uh, simply by they will intuit it. They will just get it. Because the message that's in the Bible is written upon their hearts already. So how how is it that they can understand the biblical text or at least the principles of the biblical text in the formation of their choices in life and other people who studied the scriptures for years never seem to get it. Both that may have all kinds of education. That was one of the things that people need to realize is the idea that uh, because you go to uh, you know you go to colleges and you study and you have these educations. And this is all kind of tying together with people talking about socialism and talking about the Constitution and and uh, history and all these things that they don't really know what they think they know. And so now who am I to come along and say they don't know this? I mean, uh, well, of course, like I say, we've got hundreds of hours of audios, uh, hundreds of articles, uh, books uh, with thousands and thousands of footnotes saying what we're seeing and what we're sharing and you get to figure out what we're saying and and what we're what you think you see is true and compare them and see if what you see is what we see uh, because ultimately you're responsible for your interpretation of the reality around you you know one of the quotes from the bible in second timothy 3:16 is all scripture is given by inspiration of god and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So, that means the Bible, right? Except for when that was written in Second Timothy 3.16, the Bible did not exist as we know it today. There was the Old Testament, but there was no New Testament. This would just didn't exist yet. <laughs> so, so what are they talking about except for the Old Testament? And then when you when you uh, you know it, he he goes on actually before that in the verse before that he says, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Well, wait a minute. When he says the Holy Scriptures there, that's one thing. And and then when he says all Scripture, that's another thing. Because that's, uh, that, that's two different descriptions that we see there in the text. Well, the interesting thing is, is that the Word, when he says Holy Scripture, he's using the word grandma, which is letters, bills, writings, and translated scripture just one time. And it says, in, uh, the definition is any writing, a document, a record. 
And so he's talking about any document, a record, and he's calling it Holy Scripture. He can only be talking about the Old Testament because the New Testament does not exist yet. So, and that word there that they use is holy, it is translated holy. It only appears twice, so it's not a common word for holy. But it it is a primary word, and it appears, at least in this text, it appears a couple other places, or one other place. But he's talking about the Old Testament. Possibly he's talking about other letters written by the apostles, and uh, and maybe written by Paul. And uh, there was clearly other things written by the apostles that has not survived. It's only the texts that have survived that we see generally in the Bible. There are some other texts that are attributed to apostles like the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Philip, but they are not uh, included in what we call the Bible today. But when he says all Scripture, he uses a different word for Scripture. There he just uses the word graphe, which is translated scripture, but in the Greek it just means writings. It doesn't mean necessarily Bibles. It certainly doesn't mean the Bible we have today because it hadn't been written down yet. It's just talking about writings anywhere. So all scripture is given by inspiration of God. The thing is, God is influencing us because God is influencing nature. It's influencing our our microbiology, our DNA, our our epigenetic DNA. It's influencing the, the the planet itself because God is the God of nature. God has put all these things in nature into motion. And we live in a cause and effect reality. In a cause and effect world. And God is the cause, and we are the effect. We are the creation of God. And these people actually debate, some of them, uh, Sam Harris debates, and, and other people, some agree with him, that there is no free will. And I find that uh, strange. But the reality is there are religious groups that have come out over the years, and they also believe that there is no free will. That everything is predestined. That there is no choice. And I'm actually somewhere in between on this. That the reality is is that I do believe that we have a free will. A free will choice. But that free will is not in our mind. What we see as our mind, according to Jordan Peterson, according to people you probably heard all your life, we only use about 90% of, uh, 10% of our brain and about 90% of our brain we don't really have access to. That's, that's in our subconscious. And with many people, it's actually far more of our brain we do not really access. Stuff is going on there, but we don't see it. Mostly what we see as our thoughts is seen on what you might call the screen of our mind. It's projected there. And we project stories there, poetry there, music there. And we read the music, we read the poetry, we read the authoring of our own soul as it appears on the screen. When you start a sentence, you don't necessarily have in your conscious mind the completion of that sentence, but you get to the end of that sentence eventually And where did it all come from? It came from that part of your mind which is called your subconscious. 
and it is projected into the reality by you. When you speak, you hear yourself speaking. You hear the end of the sentence when you get to it. You don't hear it when you begin it. But your mind knows where it's going. And it's projecting the ideas that are in you into that dark recesses of your own mind out on the screen of the world. And you hear it. Other people hear it. You write it down. Other people read it. You imagine it in the screen imagination in your mind. And you see your thoughts as they are projected on this mental screen of your imagination. But that's not where you make the decision. The screen does not make the decision. Somewhere deep inside you, the decision is made. And is it a million decisions or is it one decision? Because you're influenced by things that are within you. Past traumas, we've talked about that, can... You know, somebody thinks they're gay. Almost everybody who imagines that they're gay, you can trace back, and I get this from people who are gay, who know lots of gay people. They can trace back in their lives they have a similar trauma. There's a a couple of varieties of these traumas, but uh, there's a very common thread that goes back in their life either a weak father and domineering mother or no father at all, or someone, a very common one, is somebody literally molests them somewhere in their early stages of development or gets them involved in some sort of traumatic event in in relationship to sexuality. And they become, they they develop what you call uh, gender dysphoria. And people say, so you're saying that all homosexual people are crazy. No, I'm saying there's a dysphoria. There's a confusion because they're one sex and they imagine themselves to be another sex and they play out the role and they must continue to justify the role. So they say they are gay when the reality is they think they are gay. It's a projection of the mind. It's almost never some sort of uh, birth uh, defect in hormonal uh, tendency. You know, that somehow God made a mistake, made you a boy, and you're actually a girl or vice versa. It is almost always related to a traumatic event or a series of events in your early development as a child. And if people are honest, they would see that. And those traumas create this dysphoria. So that's one of those things that is influencing your life that comes back from your past that's dwelling in the dark places of your mind. And that's very recordable and uh, you can examine that if, if, if people were honest and were looking at the, the thousands of people who claim that they are gay, you will find that in the history of those individuals. They don't aren't just born gay. And, of course, what we see now today, because people are saying that, oh, you're just born this way, and this is, which is nonsense. I mean, all the original people that were promoting the acceptance of gay behavior. And, and I'm not one of these people that think you should put these people in a psych ward or anything like that, or that you should persecute them. Or that you should even, you know, like some people actually interpret in the Bible that you take up stones and stone them. 
You know, when I look at the Bible, I can see very clearly that there's nowhere in the Bible that God is telling you to pick up stones and stone people to death by hitting them with rocks. Uh, that is just obvious that it's not there in the original text, reading it in the original Hebrew. But people imagine that that's what it's saying, and they often imagine it to justify their own unforgiveness and contempt, that they think that that's what God wants. And, and Jewish scholars have gone to great lengths in creating uh, a Talmudic tradition that does away with the, those ideas, that somehow navigates around the idea that you're you're supposed to actually stone people for these things. And this is one of the things that uh, Sam Harris is constantly bringing up. He says that uh, the direction in the Bible that if you find that your your bride is not a virgin on your wedding night, you're supposed to take her back to her father's house and stone her. And that's that's what he thinks the instructions are in the Bible. I'm saying that's not the instructions in the Bible. And anybody who is rational about just human nature would know that that's not rational. They they have to have been traumatized themselves in order to imagine that that's what a God who says, love thy neighbor and forgive and and don't covet thy neighbor's goods and don't kill thy neighbor and don't uh, bear false witness against thy neighbor. A God who says all this says, oh, well, if you find out your wife, your bride is not a virgin, you take her back to her father's house and you stone her to death on the front porch. Doesn't that seem like there's a conflict there <laughs> in the character of God? You know, uh and then you hear later in the New Testament where Jesus is saying, Moses gave you divorce because of the hardness of your hearts. Did he say eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth because of the hardness of your hearts and he was putting ceiling limits on the revenge that you can take on somebody or the recompense you can take on somebody if they injure you? That you can't take all his wealth because he burned down your garage? You can only take a garage or the value of a garage? Is that what God and Moses was saying to, or God was saying to Moses? Because of the hardness of your heart, he knew that you would you would be exacting an unwarranted vengeance. We see this in the news media now, where people are people are talking about the Kavanaugh uh, situation there, which is coming up for a vote. Many people will hear this audio much later, and they'll know what actually took place, or or maybe they won't or will. I don't know what actually took place, but it's very interesting that you know Kavanaugh was accused by somebody of. Uh, inappropriate conduct when he was 17 years old. And yet I hear some people saying, well, he he was raping, you know, he raped her. Well, that's not even the accusation there. There are other accusations that came up out of the wall, but they are so uncredible, so wishy-washy, so, and and from people who are clearly unstable that uh, you can pretty much disregard them. But the one is Ford's accusation against him. But it's simply an accusation. And, and I hear people after people says, well, they, you know, she, she knows where it happened. No, she doesn't. She admits she doesn't know where it happened. She knows when it happened. They said, well, actually, she doesn't know when it happened. She can't identify the location nor the date. 
her, the, the four people that are supposedly there, two of them deny that it ever happened or that they were ever there. The other third person, who was their best friend all her life, does not recall the event and does not believe that she ever met Brett Kavanaugh, which, of course, she would have if she had been at this party where they were supposedly all at. So nobody corroborates her her story. Yet people are going around saying, oh, well, they imagine all the facts. They fill them in. Now, some of this is due to the media because the media is, is biased and they use catch words and much of the media is biased. And uh, they, so people hear the testimony of both people and they project into both people what they want to believe is they are seeing. And it's very obvious because you can get two people with the same background, same education. Uh, One happens to be a Democrat, and they say, well, obviously he was telling the truth. He was passionate about it. And they they say she appeared to be, you know, smirking and grinning and and, uh, seemed to be somebody like uh, somebody getting away with a lie. And then you ask the, you know, the person, you know, the person that may be somebody from the Republican Party, but you ask somebody from the Democratic Party, and they see everything, all the same events, and they have a completely different interpretation. They think that obviously he's lying, and he's faking it, and his emotion was just a show, and he was, because he was caught, and they they project all the, somebody's projecting into the scene, and with great ardor and and enthusiasm. And we see this within religious interpretations of the Bible. One person reads the Bible and they see one thing. Another person reads the Bible and they see another, another thing. So when we say all scripture is given by inspiration of God, uh, you know, we're, we're actually seeing that we don't see as many words in the original text as we see in the translation is given by inspiration. Uh, the words there are not actually in the text, uh, but they say all scripture of God and is, is profitable for the doctrine, for reproof and for correction and for instructions in righteousness. But really what we're talking about there, all writings are doing this. All things that we do, all things that we say, are are possibly the sources of inspiration by God. God, you know, when people wanted to have a ruler uh, in Israel, they had no ruler, no king, no president, no prime minister in Israel for hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, all the people that tried to attack them, they were able to defeat. They didn't really go in and conquer Canaan. They came into Canaan, but uh, the archaeologists, archaeological evidence is that they did not come in and violently take over Canaan. There were people who tried to be violent with them and they lost, but it appears that most of the people changed their ways because they wanted to be like the Israelites who were healthy, lived long lives, had good families, were prosperous, even where they didn't have a lot of resources, they just continued to improve and prosper and they said, we want to be like these because the society that they came to in Canaan was in, in, you know, a bad way. Let's put it that way. And the rulers in that society were ty- tyrannical. 
And, of course, the rulers in the society did not want the Israelites coming in, did not want the influence of the Israelites, and they wanted a war against them, but they were unable to defeat them. But it appears that most of the inhabitants began to do things the way Israel did it, and they were incorporated into the Israelite lifestyle. We see later a number of people that are in the text are not Israelites by blood, but are in the Israelite army and uh, interacting with Israelites because Israelite, to be an Israelite was a way. It wasn't just genetics. People became Israelites. We'll talk more about this when we come back. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. We're talking about this idea of inspiration of God. Scripture is given of inspiration of God. One of the things that I point out all the time is that uh, it isn't enough to read the Bible and get the inspiration of God out of the Bible unless you're being inspired by God to interpret the Bible. It's not given... It states this very clearly that that the the Scripture is not given to private interpretation. So who is supposed to interpret it? Well, of course, the hierarchy of the church is going to tell you they're supposed to interpret it and you're supposed to do as they tell you. But that's not actually what it's saying at all. It's not you privately that can interpret the Scripture. It's God and the Holy Spirit within you that is guiding you to understand what is going on in Scripture, what is going on in the world, what is going on in the activities all around you in the newspaper. How do you know what's true and what's not true? It's through revelation. It's through inspiration. And I I hear these people like Sam Harris and Brett uh, Jordan Peterson and these people talking about revelation and the question came up a number of times that is our people is revelation going on today and even with Ben Shapiro uh, he didn't seem to know that revelation is going on today all the time with everybody that something in you is guiding your interpretation of the facts around you. It's allowing you to see the truth and to see the lies and to put value on information so that something else inside you is deciding what is good and evil. Not you. See, if the trauma is what is influencing the screen of your mind and the interpretation of facts, you're going to see things in a particular way. And you can have all kinds of trauma. You can... Trauma can cause you to be a conservative. Trauma can cause you to be a liberal. It can cause you to be gay. It can cause you to be lots of things because that trauma is giving you feedback. It's controlling what and how you interpret the facts that come in through your eyes and your ears and through your senses. You know, and I... I, you know, I've told the story, and I actually have numerous stories like this, where somebody actually was stalking to mug me once, two guys. And there were hundreds of people on the street, and I walked out on the street, and and I mean like hundreds and hundreds of people, and I spotted them. And my attention was drawn to them, and I didn't know who they were, and they were quite a ways away, surrounded by all kinds of people, but 
my attention was focused on them, and I had no idea why. And I believe today that it was because they were focused on me with a malevolent intent. And God showed me those people. I I perceived that there's no way or reason I should... These people were a long, long distance away. They had evidently, one of them at least, had been in the restaurant probably, that's what I'm guessing, and seen me pay by taking cash out of my wallet and saw that I had a wallet with a lot of cash in it. And they began to follow me at a great distance at first, and eventually they, and I, I realized they were following me. I just kept seeing them until we got off of the street where there were hundreds and hundreds of people, and then they attempted to mug me. But I was ready and, and thwarted the attack. Again, I believe with the power of the Holy Spirit, but I didn't know what was really going on. I mean, I knew I was awakened to what was happening. Something, you know, what I could have been completely oblivious to the facts and to the conditions around me. But instead, I was awakened to them and was prepared and I think energized so that I could thwart them and stop them from actually mugging me. And it was only by the grace of God that I was able to do this without a violent altercation. But I believe that it was God showing me how the world really works. Now, like I said, I can give you lots of examples. That was one of the earliest ones that I actually noticed. But there were others, uh, even back in my youth, that were like this. That somehow or other, I knew something or evil was stalking me. And I was able to find a path. And I, I know from experience that fear interferes with that willingness or that ability to find where you really should be. And uh, anger interferes with that because fear and anger are the same thing. And so you don't want to be afraid. Fear not. You don't want to be angry. Judge not. And then this divine spirit that can dwell in you if you give it room, if you clean out your temple, get rid of the traumas. And how do you get rid of the traumas? Forgiveness. And then you can have this extra influence, which you can call the Holy Spirit or the tree of life, guiding you in your interpretation of facts. You, you look out and you see two people uh, amongst hundreds of people across, way across the, the road. And you know, hey, these people are up to something. You know, when I worked uh, at a at a uh, fast, one of the first places I worked when I had just turned 18, I started on my birthday uh, working at a fast food place, and I was the cook. And I saw somebody through all the things from way back in the kitchen. I saw one of the tellers. There were several tellers who were selling the food way up at the front, and I've got you know like. Hamburgers cooking and clams cooking and and uh, chicken and fries and I'm doing all. I'm the only cook back there and I'm running around getting all this food done. It's right there in the rush hour, and I look up and I look at the cash register, which is as far away as anything could be from me, and I saw the person and I could hear the person over the din of all the noise and the fans and everything. I could hear them say that it was three eighty five. And they only ring up 85 cents. And this is a common way. They'll ring up 85 cents and it's actually 385. They'll make change for 385. And they know that before the day is out, they have to take $3 out of the till. 
and then they they rob the till you know before the day's out they take ten fifteen dollars out of the till because they do this several times, and they like to do it during the rush hour. And I saw that. Why was I even looking in that direction? I never look at the cash register. You know the numbers up there. I can almost never even hear what they're saying up there at all because of all the noise. But my attention was drawn to this. And as again, God was showing me how this all works. I eventually got a job where I was I was a plant in a company to catch the thieves <laughs> because I was very good at seeing. And I saw the same thing take place there too. You know, I'm just supposedly a lowly worker in the place. And actually, I'm there, put there by the owner, uh, hired by the owner to find out who's robbing him. And, of course, I'm able to do it because, not because I go in there you know, some kind of uh, James Bond spy, but, but just because I'm aware of what's moving inside the people and their minds and in their hearts. And I can do that. I can see that because in my own heart and mind, I am still. I'm not a part of their commotion. The force that's moving in them is not the force of good. It's the force of evil. And when that is raises its head and is controlling their actions to rob and to steal, I sense it. Now, I can't, I have no control over sensing it. I just know that if you're still non-judgmental, non-angry, non-afraid, walking in faith, in love, you'll be more sensitive to these things. And so when you hear information on the news, you'll know, hey, that's important, that's not important, that's true, that's not true. But why are so many people today, and the numbers seem to be increasing, I have no statistical reference to say that, but there's definitely a very energetic element in society that is not being good that is not being perceptive. They are ignorant of the truth and they are energizing evil in the world. And we, we've we seen this in the past. And, you know, this is what happened in the Soviet Russia. They became uh, socialist and then communist and millions and millions of people died. And many of the people that were facilitating the deaths of those millions and millions of people were what you call communists, or at least going along with the communist regime. And there's been experiments where they show that you can take uh, people and put them in um, a position of power. Lots of individuals in a position of power, you know, they, they, they've they done tests where, okay, you're the guards and you're the prisoners, you can do this and this and this, and then it's all fake, but they're watching these individuals and they see that they actually become malevolent in their treatment. At least a portion of them become malevolent. And the more that become malevolent, the more become malevolent in their treatment of the other class of individuals because they are given this power. And, of course, I've written the article, uh, The Saul Syndrome. I actually worked on that page a little bit this week because I was seeing this connection again. That when you, you know, you give power... And power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. Okay, what is socialism? Socialism gives power supposedly to identity groups. You identify as a communist, as a socialist, 
and, uh, you know, persecuted. They have to get you thinking that you're persecuted because then you become judgmental. And they begin to manipulate the conditions of your mind to take you in a particular direction. And then you create a, a, a set of circumstances where you have power over other people. First, maybe with vote only. You, you try to get get your voting block. You know, a lot of these people, they show up at demonstrations. They, they disrupt. We saw this in the Kavanaugh hearings. It was like 70 disruptions of the hearings. And they refer to what they're doing as protests. Oh, this is our right to protest. But their right to protest is disrupting the other people's right of conducting a hearing. They don't see that. They don't see any problem with that. Well, I'm just protesting and I have a right to protest because it's about them. It's not about other people. It's not about other people's rights. You know, like uh, Ben Shapiro says, I can wave my arms around until I hit you in the face. Uh, when I, you know, actually you can wave your arms around until you make people duck. <laughs> because when you're making them duck so that they don't get hit in the face, you're infringing upon their rights. And you have a right to pursue happiness as long as you don't drive over other people's rights. So that's a very simple concept. But the left doesn't see that. They want freedom of speech for them. Anybody who contradicts them or has another opinion, they want to punch them in the face. And they want to say, well, you're a Nazi, so I get to punch you in the face, when actually they're the Nazis. Because almost all Antifa are socialists. And all Nazis were socialists. That's why they call them the National Socialist Party. (laughs) That's what Nazi means. And so what it really is is about is they want power over others. They don't want to empower others. So that's that's a key element. So write that down. You do not want to exercise power over others and infringe upon other people's rights. So other people have a freedom of speech. And you're just going to have to learn not to be triggered by it. Because if you want to shut them up, you want to infringe upon their rights. And that's your goal, to infringe upon their rights. Shut them up, not allow them to speak. Now, nobody has a right to incite people to attack you, but that's not that's not what they're shutting up. They're just shutting up somebody's opinion. So, that's going to drag your whole psyche, your whole mind, your whole heart in a particular direction. And you're going to be influenced by the spiritual pattern of that character of taking rights away from others and infringing upon the rights of others. So that's going to influence the value placement in your mind on facts and information. You're going to see things a certain way because you have the trauma of judgment for others in your heart and in your mind. And that's, so you've, you've allowed that in. That was a choice that you made. And actually it may be the result of other choices you made. So really the choices that you have is to live a selfish life, get your way, or live an unselfish life, and give life to others. This is, this is, it's a choice of direction. This is the only choice you have. All other choices will come off of that choice. 
And the problem is, is that we sometimes we don't make that choice all the way. <laughs> we fudge a little bit. You know, just you watch little kids and they, you know, they know they have to do something. They'll fudge a little bit. They'll fudge on their chores. They, they'll they do their chores, but they'll do them halfway. They won't really do them as well as they could have done. Because they haven't, they're not really committed. You know, that's what people talk a lot about marriage and that men have a difficulty making a commitment. Well, the truth is women sometimes have a difficulty to to the commitment too of what marriage is all about. Uh, both have this difficulty because it's a human difficulty that they do not honor their commitments as much as they do. They rationalize, well, uh, love, honor, but not obey. Uh, you know, love, honor, but not, if if he if she doesn't have to obey, he doesn't have to cherish her, right? I mean, quid pro quo. They're supposed to both both do both love and honor one another, and somebody has to be in charge. And the fact is, even if a man is in charge, a woman's going to have tremendous influence over the man. But the question is, what is having influence over you? If you're an unselfish person deep down in your heart, if you really want to lay down your life for others, and this is what makes us righteously human, because this is what God did. He gave us some choice. He he had the right to make all our choices for us, but he gave us the right to make at least one choice. Tree of life uh, or the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You know, you let me help you see what is right and righteous or you decide for yourself. If you decide for yourself, you cut God off. If you cut God off, you're on your own. And now the world, the traumas of the world, the influence of the world will enter into you and control your thinking. And it will lead to things like the Holocaust the road of bones in Russia, Mao's uh, bloodthirsty cultural revolutions, uh, Popot, it will go that way with a large number of people in your society. And I see it going that way in the U.S. and in Canada and in many parts of Europe and Australia. I see a large faction of people rising up, rising up in those societies that is actually controlling those societies and controlling the way in which people interact with each other, the way in which they see reality, the way in which they interpret the things that they read and see and hear. And it's because they have accepted a lie. A strong delusion has come upon them. So that they might believe a lie. And the lie is, is that you have the right to control your neighbor. Just before the program, somebody, uh, sent me some information about, uh, uh, they sent me some information about a guy who's, uh, he, he's actually been, it's, it, they've said that he is the, uh, guy who, uh, help formulate many of the ideas on socialism and communism. Karl Marx used them. Engels used his writings, and they all were using his writings to come up with their theory of socialism and communism. And uh, most people haven't even heard of him, but 
now that people are promoting socialism and communism in the universities, you hear some students bringing up Claude Henry uh, Devroy, who's also known as Henry de Saint Simon. And he was a philosopher back, I, mean, I think he was born around 1750, 1760, I think. And uh, he wrote a lot of... Uh, things that were influencing politics, economics, and sociology, and philosophy as a science back in the day, so to speak, in the 1800s, early 1800s, and latter part of the 1700s. And he had a great deal of influence, but most people, you know, uh, don't really understand what he was saying. He said uh, the primary threat to the needs of the industrial class, and to him the industrial class was anybody who was, uh, uh, that included uh, business people, managers, scientists, bankers, uh, and along with manual laborers. The industrial class were the people who were industrious, the people who were doing things to improve society and to strengthen and affect society in a good way. That was the industrial class. It wasn't just, you know, somebody working in a factory. But uh, he says the primary threat to the needs of the industrial class was another class he referred to as the idling class that included able people who preferred to be parasitic and benefit from the work of others while seeking to avoid doing work themselves. Now, this this is the problem of socialism. One of the problems of socialism. The other problem of socialism is it gives somebody power to make other people, you know, you work and this is all you get. We're going to distribute everything equally. So somebody has the power of distribution. Somebody gets to choose, whether it's by vote or by a central party or whatever. Somebody's going to have the a power, more power than the individual in the decision to distribute wealth. So, St. Simon, he stressed the need for recognition of the merits of the individual and the need for hierarchy of merit in society and the, in the economy, such as society having a hierarchical uh, merit-based organization of managers and scientists uh, to be the decision makers in government. So, he wanted scientists and business managers to be in government. He strongly criticized any expansion of government intervention into the economy or society beyond ensuring no hindrance to productive work and reducing idleness in society. What's happened is that these very socialist governments have increased idleness in society. He regarded the intervention beyond these as too intrusive. And the reality is, is that almost every socialist society. Now, this is this is someone that many of the socialists hold up as the father of socialism, even before Karl Marx. Karl Marx used his writings. Uh, Frederick Engels used his writings. There were other guys, you know, Pierre, Pierre Joseph uh, and John Stuart Mills and other people uh, who were liberal political theorists used his writings to promote their ideas, yet is very clear in his writings, he wanted very little power vested in government. He wanted power vested in engineers, uh, managers, scientists, and uh, the people who are actually a part of what he called, because those people are, in his 
definition of words is a part of the industrial class. And they're the workers who actually build society. And they maybe include managers and operators of business. And he didn't want government in intervention and uh, except to possibly reduce the idle class. You know, the, those people who want to get something for nothing. What all these socialist programs that have come out in every country from one end of Europe to the other to Australia to the United States. You know, we're not really a capitalist nation anymore. We're, we're very much a socialist nation for a lot of different reasons, which we'll have to talk about when we return to Keys of the Kingdom. But it's very interesting that their saint of socialism was actually opposing the very thing that socialism brings into the mix. And people don't see it because people want to believe what they want to believe. But anyway, we'll be right back to find out what the truth is on Keys of the Kingdom. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So we're still having some sound difficulty. <laughs> still trying to figure out what's going on. But anyway, we'll have to do that later. So we were talking about uh, Henry de Saint Simon. That's that's the most common name that we see uh, associated with him. And uh, he, I looked it up. He did. He was born actually October seventeenth, seventeen sixty, and uh, he was a Frenchman in Paris and lived for about sixty-four years and wrote a great deal about economics and politics and what have you. And I just find it absolutely astounding that people have uh, used him as kind of the poster child of socialism. And kids who are studying him in school don't even get the fact that he is really anti-socialism. He was (laughs) pro-capitalism. So, you know, it's like, how do you get that? Uh, I mean, are you actually studying his writings? Well, of course, they do hold up certain papers more than others. But one of the problems is that St. Simon was... He took certain things that he wrote about in the early days for granted that everybody understood. But uh, your your modern socialists studying in universities, they're being fed a line. And, and they're being told that, oh, yes, you know this person. You know how he thought. And they're they're picking and choosing uh, out of his material. And, of course, he, he didn't write in English. He wrote in French. And so they come up. And they, they try to create a whole scenario. And this has been going on now for decades. And so now many of the teachers that are now in your schools and in your universities are a product of, of uh, other teachers that have gone before them. And they all have diplomas that say that they know what they're talking about. And they can't imagine that they actually don't know what they're talking about. And if you... If you suggest that you've actually got him all wrong, they attack you because they think you're attacking their perception of reality, which is their delusion. They have a delusional perception of reality. How could they possibly be so uh, fooled in in this understanding of reality that they can 
imagine that somebody was who was clearly a capitalist uh, by all of his philosophies is somehow the father of socialism or one of the fathers of socialism. And part of that started way back with Karl Marx uh, identified St. Simon as being among whom he called the utopian socialist. Um, and this is what people do. The, through historian Ian Rand regards certain followers of St. Simon rather than St. Simon himself as being responsible for the rise of utopian socialism that based itself upon St. Simon's ideas. But it wasn't St. Simon who was the utopian socialist. He was quite the contrary to that. But yet, the people hold him up as that, they say he's that, and then other people come along and believe that that's what he was. Well, we see the same thing. You know, he had religious views. Uh, you know, he had, um, you know, I probably can't remember the exact name, uh, Nova uh, Christianism A or something. You know, the French are always adding extra letters. But anyway, it, he, it, before... Uh, or prior to him publishing that, had not concerned himself with theology. In this work, he states, or at least he starts uh, from the belief in God, and his objective in the treaties is to reduce Christianity to its simple and essential elements. He does this by clearing it of the dogmas and other you know, uh, defects. And he considers his dogmas as defects. And of course, there's all kinds of dogmas in Christianity. You know, the Catholic dogma, uh, you know, the predestination dogma, which is, these are manufactured dogmas. Christ was not saying these things. Christ said very specific instructions. Very, you know, he is uh, quite a few parables and some number of very specific instructions. And we see the early church following those instructions very closely. Modern church isn't doing what the early church was doing. They're really in the same kind of world as the early church. That's why I wrote articles on Rome versus us, showing the parallels in our present governments in in the United States and Canada I mean, there are some differences in these places, but compared to the Roman world, very much the same. They we, they all have senates or parliaments, and they all have uh, prime ministers and presidents. They all have commander-in-chiefs, which is what imperator means, commander-in-chief. And they all elected by the people, either through direct democratic vote or indirect democratic vote through an electoral college. All these societies are doing this. That's what Rome was doing. All these societies have systems of free bread and entertainment for the people and welfare for the people. Rome had that. And, I mean, if you actually studied history, you would see very clearly back in the days of Juvenal who, you know, used uh, these phrases like free bread and circuses this brought about the downfall of Rome because it made the people that idle group of workers or the idle class. And, uh, you know, there, there were stories of, uh, you know, in writings of Rome at the time of Christ and shortly after during the early church of the 
uh, workers on these great estates would lose their tools so that they could not hold the field. <laughs> you know, they were they were so idle because there was so much wealth around. They would get away with this. And uh, no wonder some people took to beating the slaves. You know, uh, the reality was that in th- this power class of, of great wealthy people taking large numbers of people to be their servants is a great temptation because on every estate there can be abuses. And of course, that's, that's why slavery is so bad. And, you know, when uh, people like Sam Harris and these guys are all against slavery, but uh, many of them are pro-socialism. Even Jordan Peterson was pro-socialism at one time until he actually saw the nature of most of the socialists he was dealing with. He he became disappointed in socialism uh, because of the people that it actually was attracting. And so the, he's he's now talking about individual responsibility. Well, the reality is, and, and I'm not going to go through it all right now, uh, but hopefully we'll create a whole series where we address a lot of their problems and a lot of their confusion because they're dividing up society into liberal and conservative, uh, socialist and uh, uh, capitalist, and that's simply not the right places to make those divisions. There are other elements upon which you should divide the nature of society because that's actually what controls society. They think liberalism is about having this empathy of taking care of the needy. Yet, if you look amongst uh, conservatives, they they are, uh, and compare them with the liberals, the conservatives give far more to charity. And the poor conservatives often give more charity per capita, you know, per, per what they actually make, than the wealthy conservatives. I mean, the the owners of uh, Walmart give very little of their wealth to charity and are very pro-socialism. But the workers down on the ground, a lot of the workers who work in Walmart are of a conservative nature. And if you find conservatives who are also religious, who also have families intact, they are the largest contributors to charity than the liberals who talk about their empathy for the poor. And now this isn't across the board, but just statistically speaking. Well, one of the other things that we see in the same statistic is that uh, those people who are amongst the liberals, there's actually they're dividing them up now. They're talking the far left and the liberals and the far left are the ones going around hitting people with signs so that they don't speak and going around claiming they have a right to punch a Nazi because somebody has an opinion that is different than them. This is what they call the far left. And, of course, they talk about the far right, um, which is supposed to be white supremacists. And uh, uh, sometimes they just even put nationalists over there on the far right. And um, the liberals over here, they don't want borders. They all lock their doors at night, but they don't want borders. 
And uh, there was actually one point in one of the discussions where Sam Harris was talking about where if you had this free flow of immigration everywhere, everybody would fan out over society and uh, it would all eventually be equal and everybody kind of applauded like that's actually what would go go happen but the reality is is that if everybody if you're going to do that let's let's put it this way everybody in society unlock your doors don't put your money in a vault just put your money out on the counter in your house don't lock the doors in your house put the keys in your car and then what will happen is everybody will get to go around and steal and take what they want, <laughs> you know, until everybody has an equal amount and then everything will be good, right? Do you think that makes sense? No, it does not make sense. I think there should be borders, but I don't think we should necessarily build a physical wall. They will with, with or without my opinion. I don't really care. It's up to them. They're they're going to make what they think is their choices. But I go back to the story I talk about uh, the Greeks during the Peloponnesian Wars. And there were all these different Greek city-states. And Athens was big on building a wall around their city-state. And so were other city-states. And Athens was also big on loaning money to other city-states to build a wall because there was a lot of money in a wall. They were going to, you know, it's going to be a real boondoggle. They're going to have to pay the Athens back for the wall they built. And Athens would have this income from, as wall builders. But the, there was this one city, and I can't remember the name of it. My son can always remember, right? I have difficulty remembering the name of it. But they said, we are our walls. And they actually survived the Peloponnesian War. They suffered a great deal, like everybody did. Because everybody was warring against everybody else. And there was invaders. But they survived. And uh, they probably survived as a stronger people. But that's what America should be. We should be the wall. And the wall is to go back to those precepts. That we see. That uh, people like uh, Simon was saying. So we should do what Simon says. (laughs) Simon says. And and understand, and when he was talking about religion, the first thing he was going to do is get rid of all this dogma. Uh, he said, gathered around the Catholic and Protestant forms of it. And he he propounds as the comprehensive formula of new Christianity this precept. The whole of society ought to strive toward the amelioration of the moral and physical existence of the poorest class society ought to organize itself society ought to organize itself in a way best adapted for attaining this end this principle became the watchword of the entire saint simon school of thought so society itself should organize itself in the best way uh, to take care of the needy of society. And so we've talked about the Saul principle, Saul syndrome, where you invest power in some individual for the redistribution of wealth. And that individual will be able to force the contributions of the people and then go about redistributing that wealth. 
And that uh, uh, is is the crooks. How is the best way to organize society? If you do it with somebody who can exercise authority, he will be corrupted by that authority. Uh, if it's a group, they will be corrupted. You know, the proletariat or the, you know, the Communist Party, they will be corrupted by it. Whether it be a Stalin or a Mao or a Popot, they will be corrupted by that power and those people who they empower will be corrupted. And they will exercise this this uh, terrible influence over their captives, which is everybody else. And they will be absolutely willing to kill vast numbers of the population in order to sustain themselves because they feel so self-righteous. This is one of the things that a diploma gives you a feeling of uh, you have a degree of knowledge that makes you superior to another class. And uh, that's that's not what it does. You know, and that's one of the other things that I don't want to get off on that tangent, but I was noticing that people are talking about the age of enlightenment, which is Simon is coming from this age of enlightenment period. And so they think we don't need God anymore because we can figure everything out with reason and logic. Well, the problem is, is that we're doing a lot of our reasoning on this screen of our minds and we don't know what's down there in the dark recesses of our mind, the traumas and the influences of our past that are still hidden there and replayed over and over again and are influencing our decisions uh, concerning the facts and information that comes in. We have a built-in shadowy bias that is affecting the way in which we make choices and see the reality of the world. And religion is one of those sources of those bias. But because you say, I'm not going to be religious, I'm not going to follow these religious doctrines, these abnormalities of thought, uh, you know, these irrational approaches and going back to what Sam Harris was constantly talking about, you know, take a, a woman to back, you know, your bride back to her father if you find that she is not a virgin and stoner on the front porch, you know, kind of thing. That's, if you believe that, you've already been traumatized by dogmas because you've accepted that. One of the things he says, a goat is a goat is a goat. So if you're supposed to go out and kill a goat, then that's pretty clear. It's just telling you what to do. And of course, anybody who's read our writings and our, listened to our audios on what the altars were knows that a goat is not a goat is not a goat <laughs> in the Old Testament. Uh, a pigeon or a dove, turtle dove, whatever you want to call it. Same word for a turtle dove is the word for a piece of your estate. So are you supposed to sacrifice, kill this poor dove and shed his blood and set it on fire? Or are you supposed to give up a piece of your estate? Uh, who do you give it up to? You give it up to the Levites. Okay. So, wait a minute. When you kill a, a ram, supposedly, and you're going to set it on the funeral uh, pile of stones where you're going to burn them up, you're supposed to give the kidneys of that to the Levite. Well, the problem is, you know, in this whole idea, and just we'll go through it really quick, 
Same word for kidneys is the same word for reins of control. So are you giving them the kidneys of your sacrifice or the reins of control of your sacrifice? These are free will offerings, so you get to give it to the Levite of your choice. Are you putting it on piles of stones? Because the same exact word for a gathering of stones is the same word for a gathering of friends. You know, people you trust. Look at amongst yourself, find men you trust because they're your friend. They're honorable. They're righteous. They're charitable. And give them your offering, the peace of your estate. And they have reins of control over that offering. And now they can redistribute it amongst society to help those poor that Simon says we're supposed to be taking care of. And they're going to do it in a way that strengthens the idol class so that they're no more idle. That they become industrious too. That they learn skills. That they learn to apply themselves. And that they refuse. Because he talks about the poor who are able but not working. We're not talking about the poor who are not able. The guy beat up in the ditch. The guy who was run over by a truck. We're talking about the idle poor. Everybody talks about the idle rich. There is in this country an idle poor. So who is going to decide who gets what? It needs to be men of charity. And I, I was listening to Eric uh, uh, Weinstein, if I got the name right. And, uh, and he said, what we need to do is create a slush fund and give it to the most charitable men in our community. Okay, now I have to ask the question. This, is, this would just go without even questioning this. What is he talking about? How are you creating this slush fund? Are you doing it through charity? Or are you doing it through force? Now he didn't say. So I don't know. But if Eric is thinking that you can do it through force and still maintain a free society, a healthy society, a righteous society, a prospering society, he's delusional. If he's thinking that we can do it through charity, well then, he is a wise beyond his years. Because that, the power to give, the power to sacrifice, must remain in the hands of the individual. Clearly, Simon was thinking the same thing because he said less government involvement. If you're going to use the government to force the contributions of the people, then that's increasing the involvement of government. Very clearly, Simon was not thinking that. That he was saying that we should, in the best way possible, put into action... Setting aside all these dogmas and everything, you know, it, you know, it, he he's on the stage with men like Ben Shapiro, who I consider to be uh, often the best Christian in the room. But he calls himself a Jew, but that's not surprising because in the beginning, the best Christian in the in the room was a Jew, which was Jesus Christ. <laughs> so, anyway, the. The reality is, is that uh, now, but I'm not saying he doesn't have baggage too. He has a lot of rituals and ceremonies, you know, like he, keeping the Sabbath and all these things. And of course, but I hear him saying, I just heard him the other night saying, you know, the, uh, talking about uh, individual responsibility of taking care of the poor and the needy of society through charity. 
He sees that that's what we should be doing. That's the best way to do it. Now, a lot of people say, oh, yeah, but the rich won't give. But see, if you would come together in a network of moral and and, and physical network to take care of the needy it, that you can actually see before you. And then, and this is what the tens, hundreds, and thousands were, which Christ commanded that his disciples make the people organize themselves in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. He required that the people organize themselves in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. And that's what the early church did. But all kinds of churches today have dogmas. Oh, we require that you say these magic words and that you... You, you get emotional and that you show up every week and, but they don't ever talk about organizing. Matter of fact, they avoid talking about the tens, hundreds, and thousands because they want 500 or a thousand or 2,000 or 10,000 people in their church tithing to them so they could build big buildings. That's not what the early church was all about. They were about the tens, hundreds, of thousands, a network of charity that took care of all the social welfare. We see this in Justin the Martyr's Apology, 150 A.D., where he's explaining that they gather once a week and those that have share with those that do not have enough. That's what the early church was doing. They were They were persecuted because they would not go get the free bread of Rome. Because the free bread of Rome was from compelled sacrifices, which require a covetous heart to be a part of. Polybius wrote against it. John the Baptist preached against it. Plutarch warned about it. All the apostles talk about covetous practices, making you merchandise and cursing your children with debt. And if your children are cursed with debt, it's because your nation is not keeping the Sabbath. Keeping the Sabbath is about working first and earning what benefits may come to you. It is, or waiting for those benefits to come back to you based on charity. And you should have a charitable network in place that is providing for the welfare of all the needy of your society, which is what Simon says we should be doing in the best way possible. And, of course, that's what Proverbs is telling us, that in a time of affluence, we did not strengthen the poor. We actually made them more idle and more weak. And that's what we're doing today. And you can see the destruction that this causes in places like Baltimore and, and uh, uh, you know, uh, Detroit and all these different cities where they have vast areas that are just, the city's just given up on almost. And, uh, or they're just filled with crime and, uh, drugs and, uh, are producing a elements of society that are actually dangerous and lethal where everybody is locking their doors because they're, they're afraid of those evil elements of society coming and taking over. And of course they will take over in the time of crisis. They will take over and your FEMAs of the governments that exercise authority will actually do like they did during the hurricane. They stop people from bringing in water supplies and food supplies. And uh, and they actually caused in many areas more trouble than they relieved. And that's uh, because of their systems based on force. They're not systems based on 
uh, mutual love and sacrifice. And they aren't those best people in society that Eric talks about. Uh, there are people who think that living by the, at the expense of others is okay. And that warps and changes you. Read Polybius. But anyway, we'll talk more about this when we come back. So welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So we were looking at this idea of interpreting facts and information and how it's influenced in our minds. We, we, we looked a little bit at, I mean, we could actually pull up videos and audios and show you how people will see the exact same information, the exact same testimony. And they they have completely different interpretations of them based on ideas and philosophies, not ideas about the events that they're interpreting, but separate ideas that have already gotten into them. And accepting certain ideas, they immediately judge individuals and what they're saying based on these preconceived notions and ideas. And they, they're 180%, uh, you know, or 180 degrees different in their interpretation of the same exact facts. They actually don't remember what is inconvenient. And they emphasize as absolutely valid that which they want to be valid, even though there is no cooperating evidence that it is valid. You could have ten people saying this did not happen. And one person saying it did. And they will believe the one rather than the ten. And uh, and so then this is what we see. They're bringing in other people that are completely not credible. Uh, that are known pathological liars by the people that have known them. And uh, they come up with outlandish accusations, none of which is supported by uh, the hundreds of people that had to have been involved. The stories don't even make sense. And uh, and they're believed because people want to believe them. They want to demonize one group and accept another. That is very dangerous. That is very dangerous. That's how you create gulags and the rotabones and the the march from Phnom Penh is that you demonize one whole section of society and anybody who is even uses vocabulary associated with that section of society, they're all, you can punch them in the face, you can ruin them, you can kill them, and it doesn't matter because it's all justified in the fact that your delusion must continue to be supported. Now, how do you fight this? With logic, with information, of course, we have people out there trying to fight this with facts. And they point out that facts don't seem to matter to to one group. Not that that the group bringing up facts uh, will also accept facts. If facts that contradict their delusion are just as invalid to them as the facts that contradict the other delusion. Now, it's obvious that some groups are a little bit more carried away than the other because, and usually that will be the group that is most emotionalized, you know, where emotion takes over the rhetoric and the conversation. The ones that can stay calmer uh, are sometimes 
and more coherent or sometimes have a more valid argument. But it doesn't mean that they aren't also subject to the lie and the delusion. Uh, that They just have a slightly different tactic. So how do you get completely out of the delusion? Step back from both the delusions and see reality as it really is. Well, that's really what Christianity was all about. The Christianity preached by Christ. Not the Christianity you often see in modern churches. And modern religious groups or even people... There's a, I know a lot of people who never go to church. But they consider themselves Christian or Catholic or a part of some denomination. But they never go. They don't read. They don't study it. They just... They they have their religion and they carry it as one of the objects in their their life backpack. <laughs> you know, I am this religion. But it doesn't really have too much influence until you attack it or seem to be attacking it. And then they can write your name down and strike a line through it. <laughs> so, um, but the reality is, is that Christianity was really about embracing the truth. I mean, that's what, you know, what is the truth? As Pontius Pilate says, well, what is reality? What is the truth of things? And how do, how do, how does that operate? And, and so when we look at these different perceptions of reality, how do we purify our perception of reality so that we are not a part of this great delusion? This, uh, this falsehood of perception. And, of course, this is what the whole Garden of Paradise was all about. The two choices. Uh, there was this walled-in garden. Some people say it was walled-in. I don't I don't really see the text, but I've seen that reference. But I haven't really... I have no recollection of coming across anything in the Hebrew that the garden was walled-in. I mean, there were sides, but it doesn't mean that there were necessarily walls. Uh, there were edges, but there weren't walls. But there were these two trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And you weren't supposed to eat as a source of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which in my interpretation, I see that as meaning we weren't supposed to use uh, our personal brains, our private interpretation of the facts that are, are coming in through our senses uh, as the measuring rod of the truth. That we are to depend upon the tree of life. And that tree of life, I believe to be a representative metaphor of the Holy Spirit. And I believe that the Holy Spirit will dwell in an individual and assist them in the placement of value on facts the interpretation of facts, however you want to put it, so that they can come to right reason. And this is what, you know, people like Sam Harrison is saying, that we don't need God, we don't need the Bible, we don't need all these stories. He doesn't mind if you read it, but he considers it all to be delusional. He doesn't, when he reads the Bible, and I read the Bible and I said, well, you know, I had a Christian upbringing, he had a Jewish upbringing. He also was in a single-parent family, which could be trauma right there. Uh, but there were probably other traumas in his life. But, uh, you know, the fact that he is a very bright and intelligent individual, 
and that he can learn a great many things and has done a great deal of studies, that could be a source of trauma. You know, knowledge is a source of trauma. Wealth can be a source of trauma. Beauty can be a source of trauma. All trauma is not necessarily somebody hitting you over the head with a stick. It's things of the world that have an undue influence over you. That's trauma. It is those traumas, those undue influences are taking you away from the tree of life because you begin to worship those things. You begin to value those things more than the truth itself. And, you know, flattery. You know, what was in in the movie, which I have not seen, uh, Devil's Advocate. Uh, who's in that? Al, uh, Keanu Reeves and Al Pacino or anything. I think that there's a line towards the end uh, where he talks about, you know, the devil says, you know, vanity has always been one of my greatest tools or something to that effect. So if you're real smart, if you're real good looking, if you're real rich, all these things can be a source of trauma that moves you away from the tree of life, which is the source of divine inspiration. Uh, Divine will has been defined for centuries as the law of nature. So the term law of nature and divine will are almost synonymous terms. I will say almost because they are slightly different phrases. And they're looking at the same thing from a different approach. But there's another phrase they use to define both divine will and the law of nature. Because the law of nature is the law of nature. It isn't something we wrote down and we passed through the legislature. It just exists. You know, and we use this phrase as a heuristic law of nature. And we have another heuristic phrase that we call divine will. Same thing. We have another heuristic phrase to define both those things, which is right reason, which is what uh, Sam Harris says is all we need is right reason. Well, if he's using the heuristic of right reason, which means divine will, which means the law of nature, then all you need is divine will. How do you know what the divine will is? How do you know what right reason is? Because anybody can rationalize. I mean, I'm sure Popat rationalized the march from Phnom Penh and, and Mao uh, rationalized the Cultural Revolution and Stalin uh, rationalized his death list and his road of bones. Everybody, you know, Hitler rationalized his Holocaust, which didn't just kill Jews, but killed uh, gypsies and... and um, other people that may have been handicapped even, all kinds of people. Uh, Certainly all of his opponents. You know, guilty of suspicion was one of the things that he talked about. And, of course, Tiberius did the same thing. Men of power will make you guilty of suspicion, which is one of the things that I uh, saw in the original uh, Patriot Act was that you could be guilty of suspicion. That was a crime, to be under suspicion, literally. In the Patriot Act, it makes references that can only be interpreted as you could be guilty of suspicion. Your rights could be suspended because you did something that was suspicious. 
wasn't proof, you know, preponderance. It was suspicion. Brett Kavanaugh helped write at least one of the Patriot Acts. Uh, you know, it, there was an original one. It actually wasn't called the Patriot Act originally. It was something, the Terrorist Act. And that came into being under Bill Clinton uh, after the Muir building was uh, blown up. Apparently from the inside, but that's another conspiracy theory. You don't need that, but you can just read the act, the anti-terrorist, domestic anti-terrorist act, I believe is what they called it. Uh, and when Biden introduced that into Congress, his statement was, I myself have grave reservations about this act. Uh, and then, but the day it came up for a vote, like the day after the Muir building blew up and they passed it with a few reservations, all of which were brought back in under the Patriot Act when that eventually was passed. So the reality is that there is a spirit moving society in a particular direction and there is an oblivious nature to our minds that is not seeing it. There are muggers on the corner. You don't see it coming. (laughs) Many of you don't see it coming. Some of you are beginning to sense it coming because it's pretty dang obvious that are wanting to take away your freedoms and even your life if you object to that. And they they think that they have a right to make everybody line up and operate their way. That's what Cain was. That's what Nimrod was. That's what these systems, that's what Pharaoh was. Pharaoh was a socialist system. And uh, so, and, and Caesar became socialist. They started a republic, but then they eventually, over 500 years, they morphed into a, uh, an indirect democracy and a socialist state and then an imperial state, much like, you know, one of the things that I did do this week, I don't know if I have t- much time to go into it, but uh, I worked on a page uh, concerned with Marcus Aurelius, who's another figure. So we talked about what Simon says uh, in uh, Henry Day, St. Simon, but there's also a page on Marcus Aurelius. And Marcus Aurelius was, um, you know, uh, a, an individual who uh, wrote the meditations of Marcus Aurelius. Or at least they're attributed to him. And I think he probably did write much of them. Although he took many things from other people. But you read it and it sounds like uh, he's a really great guy. You know, this this Marcus guy. Uh, because, I mean, he sounds like a Presbyterian pastor, in my opinion. And uh, I, I look at the content of that and uh, I have a copy of, I think I have most of his meditations up here on the shelf. But um, he, uh, I have some serious problems with the guy because he killed tens of thousands of people during his reign as commander-in-chief, as imperator of Rome. Why was he killing all these people? Uh, what what was going on in a man who, who said all kinds of good things and good ideas? What happened to him? Why did he become this this murderer? And he has one of the worst human rights records for Christians. You know, it's just uh, astounding some of the things that he perpetrated on others. He he wrote, What is your vocation? 
to be a good person. I mean, he has all kinds of quotes that you could read that just sound like a great guy, a great philosopher. Everything we hear is an opinion, not a fact. Everything we see is a perspective, not the truth. He wrote, when you arise in the morning, think of what a precious privilege it is to be alive, to breathe, to think, to enjoy, to love. You know, he he talks a great deal about love and the poor and doing the right thing and being good. What is your art to be good? No matter what anyone says or does, my task is to be good. You know, these are things that he constantly was saying over and over again uh, throughout the meditations of Marcus Aurelius. But later on in life, he there's another quote attributed to him. And let's see if I can find it. He says, for 25 years, I have conquered, split blood, expanded the empire. Since I became Caesar... I have known four years without war, four years of peace in twenty, and for what? I brought the sword, nothing more. So how could a man was wanting to be good, wanting to be, you know, this good man and a stoic? You know, when he was a boy, he would sleep on the floor, depriving himself of pleasure in order to keep his his senses uh Concerned with others and concerned with what is right and what is good. And then he killed so many people. And yet people still write about him. No man has ever carried further than Marcus Aurelius the desire of moral perfection. And he, uh, and he accounted, like other Stoics, the service of humanity indispensable to the attainment of such perfection. The idea which runs through all his meditations, a collection of thoughts jotted down in the leisure moments of a busy life. His view of a life is austere and even sad. The things which are much valued in life are empty and rotten and trifling. So he has this uh, desire for service, a desire to be good. But yet he killed thousands of people. He killed many, many Christians. Now, a lot of people say, well, he didn't actually kill the Christians. Well, that's like saying Hitler didn't actually kill the Jews and the gypsies and all the dissidents. He had somebody else do it. Uh, you know, like, was it Governor Tarkin or, or uh, General Tarkin or whatever, he, whatever his office was in Star Wars? He says the local governors will keep the colonies in line. You know, the different groups in line. But, you know, Marcus Aurelius was in charge of the fourth persecution. It was, uh, Justin the Martyr died under his reign. And yet, Justin the Martyr had written to, uh, Antonius Pius, which was the mentor to Marcus Aurelius. And Antonius Pius had withdrawn, uh, some of the, you know, he had written in favor of the Christians to prevent, uh, undue persecution. Hadrian and Trajan had done the same thing, but under Marcus Aurelius, no such letter or uh, lifting of uh, 
pressure was put upon them. Why were the Christians so heavily persecuted under Marcus Aurelius, who wanted to be good and righteous? Uh, well, one of the things is he imposed certain laws upon the whole of society, including birth registration. And um, Christians wouldn't be a part of such systems because you, when you registered your birth, it was with the treasurer. It was making your children merchandise. It was cursing them with the debt of the government of Rome. And uh, they knew that. And also, uh, the the uh, the registration was kept in the Temple of Saturn. Uh, because you became this collateral for debt, but you also had access to the free bread and circuses. But Christians wouldn't take of that free bread because it was forced offerings that supplied the funds to provide that free bread. And you see this very clearly when Justin is writing Antonius Pius, the emperor before Marcus, saying very clearly that those that have share with those that don't have enough. That's what we do. That's what Christianity was about. It was about taking care of the poor, like Simon says, through the best way possible, which was a redistribution of the wealth through free will offerings, through charity. That is the theme of the Bible from beginning to end. And going back to Sam Harris's, if if you're Wife, uh, your bride is not a virgin on your wedding night. Take her back to her father's house and stone her. The stoning. If the stones of the altar are living men who provide the social welfare for society. If that's what the stones of the altar really are. And that's clearly we write and show you. That's what they are. Any rational person would realize this is what was binding the nation together. This system of charity. And it made it so that they could amass an army overnight when they were attacked. Or the nephew of Abraham was attacked. They could mount an army. People would volunteer to come to their aid because they had cultivated in their culture a system of caring about other people as much as they cared about themselves. Socialism does not cultivate that. Socialism plows the Adama. It forces people to give, to sacrifice. And it empowers somebody to put their hand on that plow that forces the contributions of the people. That is all contrary to the teachings of God, the teachings of Jesus Christ, the teachings that are encompassed in the Bible, which supposedly the Muslims recognize Jesus as a prophet. Uh, You know... um, other uh, the, the Jews certainly recognized Moses and Moses and Jesus seem to be in agreement on these subjects. And Ben Shapiro seems to be in agreement on that, although he may still think that the altars were actually piles of stone upon which you you uh, killed sheep and set them on fire. But maybe, maybe if we get to talk, we can show him. If he, I mean, he's an avid reader. Maybe he'll read one of our books and have us on one of these days. But um, the persecutions of the Christians were barbaric. And uh, women and children, it didn't matter. Uh, Polycarp, uh, I got, uh, you know, in the article that I've added here on the fourth persecution, the, uh, the number of people 
that were killed and brutally killed and violently killed because they were trying to strike terror into the people. They wanted everybody to sign up for their system because they were having financial difficulties. The more people signed up, you had to pay in. And there were a lot of wealthy people that had become Christians. I suspect that some of the wealthy people that became Christians were not as giving as others. And so this pressure of persecution purified the ranks of Christianity. You had to really believe this. There was a cost that threatened and hung over you like a, a so-and-so sword, Amicles uh, or whatever it was, a sword that dangles by a thread over you because persecution may come. But the reality is, is that until you turn around and want God to rule in your heart, in order to do that, you need to forgive others. You need to sacrifice for the well-being of others. You, you need to let go of your judgment of others and come together in the tens, hundreds, and thousands to care for one another as Christ cared for you, to serve one another as Christ served you. And then your mind will be opened up and you will be able to see the truth and to see the muggers on the corner. And But until then, peace on your house and may God be with you. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Thank you.